welcome to the sermon podcast of Trinity Church PCA in Collierville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, missioncollierville.org. In the opening days of the Battle of the Bulge, a prominent, prominent Nazi officer devised a plan whereby he was going to send German soldiers who could speak English dressed in American officer uniforms behind Allied lines. And for the first few days of this trick of espionage, in some sense, it did cause havoc and it did cause problems. So one of the things that the American soldiers, one of the things that the American officers decided was that they would use code words so that they would be able to know who was a true American soldier versus an agent of the enemy. And the other day I was reading a story about this, about this time period during the Battle of the Bulge, and this man recounted how he was out one night scouting. It was very late, very hard to see. And he came around a tree and there was another American soldier, or was it a Nazi? And he immediately raised his weapon, and the other man immediately raised his weapon. And it was a standoff. And he looked at the man and he said, give me the code now. And the man was nervous. And he couldn't remember the code. Well, how did he know that this other soldier wasn't a German? So he yells, give me the code now, with both of their guns pointing at each other. And this this soldier said, I became nervous, and I couldn't remember the code word. word." And he said, it looked like we were about to have a very bad thing happen in the middle of the night, in the middle of the forest. And suddenly the other man yells out, Who won the 1941 World Series? And the man responded, the New York Yankees. And so then the other soldier yells out, who won the 1940 World Series? And the man responds, the Cincinnati Reds. And with that, they put their guns down and they took a deep sigh of relief because they knew that only real Americans would be able to answer those questions in the heat of the moment. And in fact, they were both American soldiers. So as we come to Mark chapter 8 this morning, we have a similar thing happening. We have a confession that Peter makes on behalf of the apostles that is a life-saving confession. It's a confession that we can say all these years later, removed from the Gospels, that saves our lives as well. Christ is the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You that we can come to Your Word and that we can hear truth. And that through Your Word, by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, You give us peace and You give us assurance. You speak to us. You save us. 
We hear words of grace. Father, we pray that all of these words would sink down into the very depths of our soul and that they would encourage us and that they would cause us to have a greater love and desire for your son, Jesus. And that we would have a greater desire and a greater love and a greater passion for your kingdom and for the church. And that, Father, we would leave this place listening intently to our older brother, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So one of the, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through each verse of this passage because there are insightful things that you need to understand. But the other reason that we're doing this as if we're climbing a ladder is because there's something grand that we're going to see when we get to the top of the stairs. So let's begin with verse 22. People are bringing people are bringing those who are sick, who are deaf, who are blind, who are hurt. They're coming to Jesus. They want to be touched. They want to experience his power. And we know that from this gospel and other gospels that some people see him only as a miracle worker. Some people are beginning to see him as the son of God and the son of man and that his miracles bring Attestes, excuse me, attestation, tongue-tied, to His Word. That these miracles are providing the foundation for the words that Jesus is speaking. That they can see what He is doing in terms of miracles and that they can hear Him and believe. And so Jesus is becoming quite popular and they want to touch Him. Verse 23 he takes the blind man and he spits in his eyes. Now, this is a very interesting thing that Jesus does. And there's a lot of speculation that this was a form of healing in the ancient Middle East, that they thought that there were medicinal properties involved with saliva. But in researching it this week, the truth of the matter is in the Jewish world, in the time in which Jesus lived, none of that held true. That this simply was a shocking thing that Jesus did spitting in someone's face. But there's a reason for that. That this is shocking and disgraceful, but remember that Jesus is a teacher. And remember that he has led this man off in the distance. And who is surrounding Jesus as he does this? His apostles. So just file that away for later. Verse 24, Jesus spits in his eyes. He opens his eyes. He sees. And what happens? He thinks that people are like trees moving around. Well, the one thing that we can learn from this is that this man was not born blind. Because if he had been born blind, he would not know what the difference is between people and trees and other objects. He would have to learn that. And so clearly at some point in his life he could see because he understood what trees are. Verse 25 and 26. His eyes were opened, his sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. This is the second time. And Jesus says, don't go back into the village on your way home. Why does Jesus 
say that? Why does he utter such words? And the answer is, we've already seen that Jesus is growing in his popularity. This has been building as we've walked through Mark chapter 5, 6, and 7. And so Jesus does not want the people to misunderstand who he is. He does not want them to think that he is a religious leader who is going to raise up a political military army and try to take on the Roman government in Jerusalem because the Jewish people at the time of Jesus did not understand exactly what the Messiah was supposed to do according to the Old Testament. They were looking to remove the Roman government. That was their thorn in the flesh, and that's how the Davidic kingdom would be established, and perhaps that would usher in the coming of the kingdom. And Jesus is doing it a completely different way, and he knows that they will misunderstand this. And he knows that it is not time for him to go to Jerusalem. It's not time for him to ascend that hill. It's not time for him to go to the cross. So be quiet. Obey me and be quiet. So what's, what's going on here in this passage? What's happening? Jesus heals this blind man. He spits in his eyes. He can't quite see it first, and then his sight is completely restored. What's going on? Because Jesus could have healed him the very first time. Does this mean that Jesus wasn't fully capable as a miracle worker at that moment? No, because we know that Jesus is the Son of God. And we know that he could have healed him with a snap of his fingers. Here's what's happening. Remember Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. A deaf man is healed. And then in our text today, a blind man is healed. Now this is the first instance in the Gospel of Mark of someone who is blind being healed. Now if you will remember in the Old Testament, the prophecies concerning the coming of the kingdom was that the blind would see and the deaf would hear. Also that the lame would walk. And we've seen that as well. Now if you'll go back to Mark chapter 8 verses 16 through 21 in your Bibles. And this is what we looked at last week. I want you to read along with me. At this they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying. So he said, why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? Now notice verse 18. Notice this. Focus on this. You have eyes. Can't you see? You have ears. Can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterward? Twelve, they said. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. Don't you understand yet? He asked them. You see what Jesus is doing? He's healed a blind man. He's healed a deaf man. They have had a conversation in the boat about bread. And Jesus says to them, I fed the Jewish people in the wilderness. I am the greater Moses. 
We talked about this last week. How many baskets were left over? Twelve. How many tribes are there in the nation of Israel? Twelve. How many apostles are there? Twelve. Then he says, and I also fed the Gentiles in the wilderness. Now, they would have understand prophecies from the Old Testament that when the kingdom comes, the kingdom is going to be both for the Jewish people and Gentiles. And how many baskets of bread were left over? Seven. And what is the number seven? In Scripture, it is the number of perfection. Jesus is saying to them, open your eyes. He's taken them out into outside the village with this blind man. And the reason why He enables him to see in a two-step process is not for the blind man. In fact, I have to think that when Jesus is walking with the blind man, perhaps He told him, this is going to be just as much for you as it is going to be for My apostles. He takes him outside the village. He does the two-step process of healing his vision so that the apostles would begin to see. He's telling them. He's teaching them. This is a teaching moment. Look. Look. Examine me. Look at me closely. I am the King. I am the Messiah. I am the Redeemer. You are beginning to see. You are beginning to see like this, this poor man that I've healed. Who at first glance thought that people were trees walking around. You are beginning to see who I am. I am the Christ. The Anointed One. Look, see, understand. Remember, Jesus spit into the eyes of the blind man. He is saying to His apostles, when you fully see who I am, it's going to be shocking and it's going to be disgraceful. Spitting into the eyes of another person is shocking. It is disgraceful. It was shocking then. It was disgraceful then. And Jesus is saying to them, you are slowly seeing who I am. And when you fully see me as your Savior, as the Son of Man and Son of God, it will be shocking and disgraceful. My trial will be disgraceful. Me hanging on the cross, naked and beaten, will be disgraceful. It will be shocking. You are beginning to see who I am. We're going up the steps. We're climbing the ladder. And we're coming to verse 29. Trinity. All of the Gospel of Mark is building up to this point. From Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it's all been leading to Mark chapter 8, verse 29. And here's what he writes. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And from here, we head to Jerusalem. This is the pivotal point in the Gospel of Mark. Where the apostles 
are finally beginning to see after calming the storms, walking on water, healing the blind, healing the deaf, healing the lamb, feeding the thousands, sending the evil spirits into the pigs, conquering evil momentarily, we've come to the point whereby the apostles have rubbed their eyes and they are beginning to see the shocking and disgracefulness of who Jesus is and His ministry according to the Jewish leaders of His time. It's a confession of faith. You are the Christ, which means you are the Messiah. This is our confession this morning. We stand with the apostles. And as God's people, we also say that you are the Christ. This is a significant thing. Yes, it's a turning point in the Gospel of Mark, but it is an important and significant and impactful thing that we say as God's people all of these generations later. It is for us a confession of faith. We say, Jesus, You are the Christ. In saying that, we are admitting that He is the one who atones for our sins. He is the one who saves us. He is the one who redeems us from the pit of sorrow. You are the Christ. It is also a confession of unity. When we say this as God's people, we are looking towards one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are saying He unifies us. He brings us together. We come into this place and we have different family backgrounds and we have different vocations and we have different issues and problems and struggles, but here we are forgiven in Christ and we are loved. And so when we say you are the Christ, we are saying to one another, we are a family, we are unified in Him, we rally around the cross. But it also does something else. We are saying to the world, we are different than you. Because our Savior is Jesus. We are seeking salvation and no one else. He is it. We are not perfect. We are sinful. But we belong to Him. Confession of unity. It's also a confession of praise. When we say, you are the Christ, we are praising His name. We are submitting our hearts, as I said last week, to His reign and to His rule. We are saying, you are everything and I am nothing. We are saying, you are my Lord and I am your servant. It is a confession of of praise. And lastly, it is a confession of hope. You are the Christ. You are the one that I am placing my hope in, not only to save me eternally, 
but to help me in the here and the now. That through the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, which is the ministry of Jesus Christ in us, a gift that He sends to us, it is a blessing of His covenant obedience that He gives to His people. Because of the ministry of Christ working in our hearts, we have hope right here, right now, no matter what's facing you. No matter what's going on in your life. That when we say, you are the Christ... It is a confession of hope that encourages our hearts and our souls as God's people. So why don't you join with me in saying this? I will ask you who Jesus is and then join with me as we say, you are the Christ. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank You for this great word of hope this morning. We thank You for this confession which was true when the apostles said it and is true this very day. We thank You that we can look to You and that You give us hope, You give us unity, You give us faith. And so Father, may our words be pleasing to You. May our confession be a form of worship before your throne this morning. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.